Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We're taking a break before the Giro d'Italia on the Bradley Wiggins Show, but to tide you over until the return of Grand Tour Racing, here's an episode of Eurosport's cycling history podcast, Recycle, on the man Brad went toe-to-toe with. Lance Armstrong's crash and fight back for victory on Lutz Ardiden in the 2003 Tour de France. With the yellow jersey of Armstrong, the Juscatel orange of Iban Mayo, the Celeste Bianchi blue of Jan Ulrich, and the electric pink of Alexander Vinokorov's Team Telecom, even the vibrant colours of the 2003 Tour de France, played out during a fierce European heatwave, set the race apart. Before it became a mere asterisk, the Americans' record-equalling fifth Tour triumph was a race for the ages. It was the hardest fought of Armstrong's GC wins, and one equally filled with intrigue and controversy. Stage 15 to Luzardiden was, in particular, according to author Richard Moore, arguably the most dramatic and important single stage in his seven tours. Even before the peloton rolled out of Bagnères de Bigorre that morning, for the third successive day in the Pyrenees, the defending champion had been racked by tensions and doubt. Armstrong, then 31, had bounced back from illness, overcome numerous mechanical glitches and even dodged a tumbling rival on a sinuous descent. Narrowly avoiding a ditch and disaster, he briefly turned the tour into a cyclocross event when he was forced to scythe through a field before rejoining the race. With the mercury rising above the 30-degree mark, Armstrong entered the queen stage of the race with a sense of precariousness unknown to him since his first comeback win in 1999. Just 18 seconds separated the top three in the general classification, the closest margin ever at this point in a tour. When his yellow jersey rivals Vinokorov and Ulrich put in early attacks on the Tourmalet, Armstrong had to dig deeper than ever. Back in control, and with Mayo clinging to his wheel, he attacked on the final climb, only to collapse to the floor after snaring his handlebars on a young spectator's bag. As yellow brought down orange, Celeste Blue rode clear, uncertain of his calling on the final climb to Luzardiden. What happened next was one of Armstrong's most stirring performances, and the most exciting at the tour since another American, Greg LeMond, defeated Laurent Fignon by just eight seconds in 1989. The extra spice behind the tangle of bikes that sent Armstrong and Basque climber Mayo sprawling on Luzardiden had its origins in the confrontation between the pair at the Criterium du Dauphiné earlier that summer. The Dauphiné was Armstrong's pre-tour rendezvous of choice, and he led the race that year after winning the Stage 3 time trial. His biggest threat came from the unpredictable and erratic Mayo, a rider whom Armstrong disliked, famously describing him as that little punk. In Richard Moore's book, Etap, written well after Armstrong's empire had come crumbling down, the American told the British journalist that we were all sort of dirty, but I viewed Mayo as being a lot dirtier than us. 
Armstrong always knew where he stood with Ulrich, a cargo ship of a rider who relied on buckets of coal, brute force and those trademark metronomic surges in the big ring. But Mayo was different. Lithe and enigmatic, the Spaniard was a jack-in-the-box. Persistent as a fly, yet prone to implosion, Mayo revelled in explosive attacks on the element of surprise. Like Forrest Gump's box of chocolates, you never knew what you were going to get. While in yellow in the Dauphiné, Armstrong crashed badly but refused to give up because Mayo was breathing down his neck in second place. His dislike of the Yuskatel rider was so intense that he couldn't bear gifting him the overall victory by pulling out. So I stayed in, Armstrong told Moore during a round of golf. And he kept attacking me, attacking me hard on the Galibier. And it just killed me to stay with him. But I wasn't going to let this little punk win. When Armstrong caught Mayo on the Glibier on the penultimate stage, he gave him the look, which he'd famously used to intimidate Ulrich on Alpe d'Huez in the 2001 tour. A day later, on the final stage, Armstrong couldn't resist riding up to Mayo and saying, Iban, can't you go a bit harder than that? It was a question he repeated after closing down every attack his rival put in, a question that, a month later at the tour, he'd probably regret asking. Armstrong ended up winning the Dauphiné, but at a huge mental and physical cost. It took too much out of me, he told Moore. I had two weeks between the Dauphiné and the Tour, and I just didn't recover. I came into the Tour behind, and tired, and depleted. The Texan arrived in Paris for the Grand Depart still pretty bashed up from his crash, and off the back of a week grappling with gastroenteritis. Ahead of the team presentation, a bird flew into the US Postal Team bus and left a deposit on sporting director Johan Brunil's suit. Armstrong recalled how his Czech teammate Pavel Padanos immediately said it was a bad omen. He wasn't wrong, with numerous technical glitches dogging the team over the opening week, including brake rims rubbing on tyres and front wheels coming loose. More pressing at the time, however, was Armstrong's inability to walk. Owing to new shoes and a problem with his cleats, his hip was giving him additional jip and his leg totally seized up ahead of the prologue. He still managed a solid seventh place, but he could barely walk without a limp and his bid for a fifth tour win had got off to a stuttering start. The American found his feet during the early flat stages, however, and in the monster 69km time trial on stage four, with US Postal's resounding victory by more than 30 seconds over their nearest rivals, Onsei Iroski. It moved Armstrong up to second place and saw Postal riders occupying the top eight places on GC, with Colombia's Victor Hugo Peña in yellow. It all seemed like business as usual for Brunil's boys. A splendid solo win for Richard Varonk at Morzine in the first stage in the Alps saw the Frenchman take the race lead as the favourites marked each other out. Then came stage 8 and Alpe d'Huez, where that man Mayo came into his own, soloing to victory by more than two minutes on Armstrong, who made do with the yellow jersey. The sweltering switchbacks took their toll on Ulrich, however, the German juggernaut wilting in the heat and coming in nearly a minute and a half down on the American. Stage 9 to Gap gave us the moment that Armstrong's dreams could have ended up in a ditch. Shadowing Joseba Berlocchi on the treacherous final descent of the Côte de la Rochette, 
Armstrong was forced off the road on a tight hairpin after the Spaniard hit the deck at top speed, his front tyre exploding in the melted tarmac. Armstrong somehow managed to pick a gap between a lingering gendarme and a roadside ditch before cutting across a parched field with a bit of impromptu cyclocross in order to rejoin the road after the bend. As Moore says in a tap, It was an incident that encapsulated Armstrong's good fortune and skill, an extraordinary near-miss and an equally extraordinary demonstration of improvisation, not to mention bike-handling ability. Bolocki, however, was not so lucky. Third in 2001 and second in 2002, the Onse rider looked even stronger in 2003. But the horrific crash saw him fracture his femur in two places and break both his elbow and wrist. He left the tour in tears in the back of an ambulance. He would never again be the same rider. The incident took place just four kilometres from the finish, with the pair in hot pursuit of the Kazakh livewire Vinokorov, who held on for a victory that put him into second place in the standings, 21 seconds down on the Texan. It was Armstrong's third near miss of the race. I was very afraid, and I was very lucky, he later admitted. He even avoided a penalty, despite breaking Article 18 of the Tour's rules, which forbids taking shortcuts from the official course. The next GC showdown was not until the 47km individual time trial from Gajak to Cap de Covert, where Ulrich came roaring back into contention. Having survived Alp d'Huez, the German pulverised the field across the Tarn landscape and under a scorching sun. Speaking after the 2003 tour, Armstrong described his off day as a moment of intense suffering, the likes of which I've experienced very rarely in my career. I was at the bottom of a deep hole. Usually so adept against the clock, the frazzled Texan conceded a whopping 1 minute and 36 seconds to his rival as Ulrich rode himself to within 34 seconds of the race lead. When I heard Ulrich's time, I said to myself, the tour's over. At that moment, I was in crisis, a deep crisis, almost giving up. Things would get worse for the American. The next day at the ski resort of Extoire Domaine, on the first stage in the Pyrenees, Armstrong lost another 7 seconds and 12 bonus seconds to Ulrich, who now trailed the yellow jersey by just 15 seconds. Armstrong told reporters that something is not clicking. The same could be said of the following day's stage 14 to Ludenviel, where Armstrong conceded more time to both Mayo and Vinokorov, who was now 18 seconds down on GC. With Auric still at 15 seconds, it was the tightest virtual podium the Tour has ever seen entering the final week. It looked like everything would come down to the final day in the Pyrenees, the race's 159.5 km long Queen stage which featured the Col d'Aspan and the mighty Tourmalet ahead of the final slog to Luzardiden. In an unprecedented scenario for the American, he entered the final week with both Ulrich and Vinokorov within touching distance of his crown. Then, something happened ahead of the stage 15 start in Bagnères de Bigorre that made Armstrong's blood boil. As he recalled shortly after the tour, the morning of Luzardiden, one of the boys who works for us at the tour told me a story. He told me that a year ago, Rudy Pavanage, Auric's sporting director, asked him for one of my yellow jerseys. 
and that he had asked again at Paris. And then he said that the morning before Axe-Trois Domaine, Pavanage went to see him and said, Oh, you can forget that yellow jersey. We'll have our own pretty soon. When I heard that, I told him, The tour's finished. He'll never have it. It really, really, really motivated me. I went crazy, completely crazy. It was a really profound moment for me because I felt personally hurt. So it became a challenge. And so to the fateful day. The remaining 151 riders rolled out of Bagnères de Bigorre after a minute's silence to commemorate Laurie Aus, the AG2R rider who had been killed by a drunk driver the day before while out training near his home in Estonia. An early move of 15 riders, including four Agere2R riders, went clear after 15 kilometres, but they were reeled in soon after Sylvain Chavanel of La Boulangère and Santiago Botero of Team Telecom edged clear on the succession of leg-stretching fourth-category climbs that preceded the high mountains. The leading duo crested the summit of the Col d'Aspan with almost six minutes on a single chasing rider and slightly more than nine minutes on the main pack, led over the top by Varonk to consolidate his grip on the polka dot jersey. Riding his third tour, Chavanel had finished third in Morzine the day Varonk had gone into yellow with his swashbuckling solo attack. The 24-year-old was one of the rising stars of French cycling, and he had the courage, or foolhardiness, to shed his Colombian colleague at the base of the Col du Tourmalet. Thousands of lively Basque fans, most kitted out in orange and flying the red and green Basque flag, had flocked to the legendary peak to support their man Mayo. The mercurial climber had already won on Dutch Mountain and was up to fifth place on GC, albeit four minutes and 37 seconds down on the American rider who couldn't stand him. If Chavanel was able to fight through these crazed fans to secure the souvenir Jacques Godet for being the first over the Tourmalet, the real battle had kicked off further down the mountain, and what they saw pleased those Basque fans aplenty. It was Vinokorov who made the first move on the Tourmalet, dancing clear with an early attack that was quickly closed down by Armstrong. But then a dig from Mayo and a series of grinding accelerations from Ulrich put Armstrong under the cosh. Measuring his efforts, Armstrong allowed Ulrich to go clear, doing enough to keep the gap at around 50 metres in the heat and haze of the Pyrenean cauldron. Speaking to Moore, Mayo recalled the flurry of activity. I attacked, then Ulrich came across and went for it. Then there was Heimar Zubeldia and Armstrong behind. At one point, Ulrich was ahead, then Armstrong was 50 metres back, then me another 50 metres back then Zubeldia. I remember thinking, Ulrich should stop. Finally, he did, and the four of us joined together. For his part, Armstrong felt Ulrich had gone away too early, what with there being more than 40 kilometres remaining, including the long descent and final climb. So, he kept his rival dangling, revelling in the idea that Ulrich might be digging his own grave. As he told Moore, he was going fast, he was going hard, it was hard for me to keep him at a stable distance, but it was better that I let him burn some matches on the Tourmalet so that he didn't have them on Luzardaden. 
Armstrong would later explain just how much he felt Ulrich was shooting himself in the foot in a brutal assessment that highlighted the lingering antipathy towards Pevenage, the Bianchi director sportive, as much as it did his own pride. I said to myself, big mistake, huge mistake. But that was the responsibility of his director sportive in the car. If Johan Brunil had seen me go like that, he'd have shouted, What do you think you're doing? Where are you going? Are you nuts? It's not a village criterium, it's the Tour de France. Their arrogance made them lose, because they were sure I wouldn't be able to follow. But I'm not just anyone. I'm not some rider. Auric was caught by Armstrong, as well as the Euskatel duo Mayo and Zubeldia before the summit. The quartet broke through the clouds and into the sun in the next valley before Armstrong and Ulrich eased up, much to the annoyance of Mayo, opening the door to the other chasers, the likes of Vinokorov, Ivan Basso, Tyler Hamilton, Carlos Sastra and Christophe Moreau. After the long descent, the chase came back together as the race passed through Lou Saint-Sever on the preamble to the final climb. Lone Ranger Chavanel hit the final 15km climb with a gap of 4 minutes and 49 seconds on the Armstrong group, which was being driven by the American's teammate Manuel Beltran. Under the old regulations, riders were allowed to discard their helmets for the final climb, so viewers at home and on the side of the road could identify the protagonists more easily. They could also see, up close, the awesome effort and range of emotions etched across the riders' faces. Shortly after the climb to Luzardedan started, Mayo hit the front and put in a series of attacks. Armstrong looked to have recovered from his wobble on the tourmalet. He chased down his bet noir, caught him. Is that all you've got, Iban? Then zipped on as Ulrich struggled behind. A gap was opening and the American sensed this could be the pivotal moment. Hugging the right-hand side of the road, Armstrong darted clear out of the saddle driving down hard on the pedals as Mayo dug deep to hold his wheel and Ulrich, driving a big gear, grimaced as he slowly closed in. I was too close to the side, which I had a tendency to do, Armstrong later told Moore. A lot of times in time trials, Johan would say over the radio, watch the f***ing side of the road. There's debris over there. There are people there. I was always trying to get as close to the side as I could because any kind of protection from the wind is good. But who knows, some lunatic. He tails off. This was no different to normal. I just got too close. One of the many fans lining the road was no lunatic, but a young boy whose parents had bought a yellow commemorative musette from a stand at the top of the final climb. The boy was waving his bag like a flag as the world's most famous bike racer surged past, chomping at the bit. Bam! Down came Armstrong. He collapsed in a heap, taking down Mayo with him in an orange and yellow tangle. Replays showed that he caught the hood of his right handlebar on the boy's musette, which catapulted the then four-time tour winner to the tarmac. Ulrich's eyes widened. A few metres further back, he had just enough time to veer dramatically to his left, avoiding his sprawling rivals by a whisker showing the same dexterous reactions as Armstrong had a week earlier to avoid Balocchi. The German rode on, confused as much as the commentators, and looking behind him to see what had happened. Speaking after the tour, Armstrong recalled his reaction to the fall. I said to myself, this can't be happening, 
not now. At the time, I didn't think about the time loss. I thought about the state of my bike, if I needed to change it or if I should carry on with it. I tried to get up as quickly as I could, saw I wasn't hurt apart from a cut on my elbow, checked the bike over, put the chain back on and set off. At times like that, instinct takes over. As Armstrong and Mayo got to their feet and inspected their bikes, a wave of riders passed by, including Zubeldia, Hamilton, Basso and Moreau. Mayo was quicker to get going again, while Armstrong sorted out an issue with his chain before issuing a stern rebuke towards his mechanic, who had stopped to give him a push start. Commentating on the stage, the late Paul Sherwin explained the situation. Auric is now in first place. I can't believe he will take advantage of this. He's looking over his shoulders. He knows there's a possibility of winning the Tour de France right now, but he's not sure what's happening. Auric's indecisiveness on the front was given a helping hand by Hamilton. A former teammate of Armstrong, the American CSC rider who was competing with a broken collarbone after a nasty fall in the opening week, gestured for the German and Basso to slow down. It was Hamilton, too, who had slowed during the earlier descent to Gap to check his compatriot was all right after he rejoined the road following Balocchi's crash. If it was widely held that Hamilton's actions were inspired by a sense of fair play to honour cycling's unwritten rules, Mayo had another theory. Speaking to Moore, the climber later said, I was up the quickest and rejoined the group ahead of Armstrong, and Hamilton was there, saying we should wait for Armstrong. Hamilton wasn't on a good day. That's my impression. After the stage, Auric claimed he had been correct not to attack following the incident. Armstrong, at least initially, was appreciative of his rival's reaction, saying it was the gesture of a gentleman. I'm really grateful for Jan for remembering my gesture of two years ago, he said, referring to the time he had slowed down for Auric when he crashed on the descent of the Col de Perisord in the 2001 tour. What goes around comes around, Armstrong added. But after studying the footage of the crash much later on, Armstrong could not resist criticising Ulrich for his indecision and the fact that it took Hamilton's intervention for the German to take his foot off the gas. As Moore elaborates, Armstrong believed most, if not all, of his rivals were doping. That was OK. Taking advantage of a rival's misfortune on the road, however, was not. There was, after all, honour among thieves. The drama was far from over. It's complete and utter chaos at the back end of the bike race, said Sherwin for the American and UK audiences. As Armstrong battled to return to the fold, dancing on the pedals to close the gap, Phil Liggett chipped in. The adrenaline will be pumping now like you will not believe. He's got to control it. Otherwise, he will take himself over the top. Then he did just that, taking himself over the top and almost onto the ground again. Pushing the pedals with such ferocity as he surged past Mayo, Armstrong was caught short when his chain jumped and his pedals unclipped, forcing him to slump onto his top tube and over the handlebars like a drunk man making a getaway on a stolen bike. Somehow, he managed to keep his balance. And somehow, Mayo avoided being brought down by the yellow jersey for a second time in as many minutes. Oh, what is going on? cried an incredulous Liggett. What exactly was going on? 
Armstrong would not learn until after the stage, when he inspected his trek more closely. It turned out that the chainstay area was cracked and bottom bracket compromised. His bike was a ticking time bomb. What happened might never have been. At the time, however, Armstrong had no option other than to battle on with what he had. Changing bikes was inconceivable. He couldn't give Ulrich any more time ahead of the final time trial, especially given how the German rider had destroyed him at Cap de Couvert. So, despite his crash and subsequent near miss, Armstrong continued going deep into the red to salvage his race. By now, Meyer had caught up with the leaders just around the time Hamilton was urging the dual diesel engines of Ulrich and Basso to drop down a gear. Having twice been compromised by the American, Mayo had no appetite to wait up. Could you blame him? Behind, Armstrong had been joined by teammate Chechu Ribera, who helped pace his leader back into the fold. Speaking into his earpiece, Brunil urged Armstrong to ride with the others, to recover and find a rhythm. But the adrenaline was pumping, and Armstrong was riding on pure fury. When that little punk Mayo put in another attack, Armstrong reeled him in and gave him the famous look as he passed. Here's Paul Sherwin again. And he's going again, Phil. He's accelerated again. This is amazing. The man has been on the ground. He almost lost his manhood on the crossbars a few moments ago, and he's decided he wants to go. This is fabulous. It's unbelievable. The man was on the ground. He's had problems with his pedals, and now he's decided to go on the attack and put Ulrich on the offensive. With Mayo dropping back, Armstrong continued in pursuit of the only man left up the road, Sylvain Chavanel. He pushed his glasses onto the top of his head, revealing a crazed glare. His yellow jersey scuffed and his bloody elbow grazed, the Texan's face was a picture of angry determination. My attack was made in desperation, Armstrong later explained. I felt a huge rush of adrenaline. I said to myself, Lance, if you want to win the tour, you better attack. Unable to keep up, Mayo was swallowed up by the Ulrich group. Because the German rider trailed Armstrong by just 15 seconds on GC, it was left to Ulrich to do all the work. With his helmet off, his weather-beaten brow, pained face and the hoop earring in his left ear were all the more visible. He was compelled to do all the chasing, sandbagged by the likes of Hamilton, Basso, and the Basques. The last man standing from the break, Chavanel's four-minute gap had vanished over the course of the climb. Having spent 120 kilometres on the front, the Frenchman was caught with just four and a half kilometres remaining. The turbocharged Armstrong tapping his colleague on his flank as he blew past. That evening, Chavanel, after finishing 10th on the stage, would tell French television it's true that I believed I could win at one point, but when I heard that it was Armstrong leading the chase behind, well, four minutes disappears fast. I turned and could see him coming. He gave me a tap as he passed, which I thought was nice. He didn't say anything. He didn't have the time, given the fury he was in. No rest for the wicked. Armstrong continued to bury himself all the way to the line, which was met with the kind of lunge you'd expect in a sprint finish and no celebration whatsoever. Having contributed little to the chase, Mayo, despite being minutes down on GC, 
pointedly outkicked Ulrich for second place, 40 seconds in arrears. Zubeldia was fourth, ahead of Moreau, Basso and Hamilton, with Vinokorov two minutes back and Rubira completing the top 10 with the gutsy Chavanel. Victory, plucked from the jaws of catastrophe, increased Armstrong's lead to one minute and seven seconds over Ulrich, giving him a vital cushion ahead of the deciding time trial. And, if the American looked like a man possessed on the bike, then his frenzy continued long after the stage was over. That evening, instead of taking a private car to the team hotel, a jubilant Armstrong boarded the bus with the US Postal Squad. It was the most euphoric day for Lance since I've known him, his teammate Victor Hugo Pena told Richard Moore. I've seen him happy before, but never like this. He stormed up and down the aisle, punching seats and shouting, No one trains like me. No one rides like me. This jersey's mine. I live for this jersey. It's my life. No one's taking it away from me while I'm around. This jersey's mine. Speaking to reporters that night, Armstrong enigmatically said, This has been a tour of too many problems, too many close calls, too many near misses. I just wish the problems would stop. Many of the problems I haven't discussed, but there have been a lot of strange things that happened that I need to stop having. Some of them were evident, like the stage to gap. Other things were not talked about. It's been a very odd, crisis-filled tour but it was a good day today. So, what happened next? After Tuesday's rest day, Hamilton's sense of fair play was rewarded in stage 16 when the crocked American won the first tour stage of his career at Bayonne after a barnstorming 146-kilometre solo breakaway. He fought back after being dropped early on to bridge over to the break Then he rode clear. This was followed by two transitional stages ahead of the 49km time trial from Pornic to Nantes. After three weeks of stifling heat, the heavens opened for the race against the clock. That didn't stop Ulrich gaining six seconds on Armstrong over the first two kilometres, but if that put the German on course to seize the yellow jersey from his rival's shoulders, his continued risk-taking in slippery conditions finally caught up with him when Ulrich skidded on a roundabout and slid into a hay bale barrier. Ulrich dropped to fourth, 11 seconds down on Armstrong, as Britain's David Miller took the spoils by nine seconds on the resurgent Hamilton. A tour that, ahead of that fateful stage to Luzardiden was the closest ever, ended with Armstrong celebrating in the streets of Paris with a gap of one minute and one second over his closest adversary. Kazakhstan's Vinokorov completed the final podium more than four minutes down, while Hamilton finished a career-high fourth. Mayo's inability to race against the clock saw the Yuskatel rider miss out on a top-five finish. He came in sixth, behind his teammate and compatriot Zubeldia. Armstrong's victory in the world's biggest bike race saw him join Jacques Anquetil, Eddie Merckx, Bernardino and Miguel Indurain in the exclusive five-time Tour Winners Club. But the 31-year-old never disguised how much the 100th anniversary edition of the race had taken out of him, openly admitting to being vulnerable and pushed all the way by Ulrich. No one likes stress, he said. 
I don't ever want to go through another tour like this. If it ever happens, at least I'll have the experience of this one. But I hope it doesn't. I had a fright this year because nothing went according to plan. Armstrong came back in 2006 and demolished the field to take a record sixth tour win. His closest challenger was T-Mobile's Andreas Cloden, who came home six minutes down, while Ulrich could manage only fourth. A seventh victory, this time over Basso and by almost five minutes, came a year later, promptly followed by the Americans' retirement. We all know what happened next. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. If you enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more epic tales from cycling history from Eurosport. Just search Recycle wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back with the main man on The Bradley Wiggins Show very soon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.